Hello, Headlers. David here with your blowout this week. Did you know that during the mid-20th century, uh, upwards of 95% of all clothing worn in the United States was produced in one tiny section of Manhattan that was less than the size of a square mile? We're talking about the Garment District today, which uh, is a small patch of land between like 34th and 40th and uh, between Broadway and uh, 8th Avenue in New York City, which has been the hub of American uh, fashion production for about the last hundred years. We are going to be discussing all this with Alex Robbins who is one half of the Belgian linen brand Blue Maid that does 100% of their manufacturing in the garment district, and they have been a new voice in the fight to preserve the place. So stick around, and you can hear all about the history of the garment district and what it is like to work there, and uh, what some of your favorite brands like Engineered Garments, uh, Battenware, Corridor, and many more do their work there in New York City. Also want to give a shout out to the Heddle's Shop, our in-house sponsor. This week we've got in a new selection of Snap Button Madras Western short sleeve shirts from Left Field NYC. That's a mouthful. It is a authentic bleeding Indian Madras that is cut and sewn in a couple models with some Japanese chambray here in USA to make for a lovely summer option with snap buttons and those flat pockets. They are a beautiful piece of shirting. You can check those out at shop.heddles.com and as always get 10% off with the code blowout. All right, let's get to the interview. Alex, you are the uh, one half of the owner and proprietor of Blue Maid. And we are here to talk about the Garment District. David, always good to be here. So I was wondering if you could give a little bit of background for people that might not be familiar with Blue Maid um, to like tell a little bit of what you're all about. And uh, then we can get into what the uh, Garment District sort of means to you. Absolutely. Uh, as you said, I'm one half. I'm the lesser half of Blue Maid and my better half. My wife, Lily Lampy, is um, my partner in crime. Uh, we've been doing this. Uh, we started the concept of the brand in 2015, but we really launched in uh, 2016. So in some ways, we are a new brand. And in some ways, we're, we've kind of sharpened our teeth a little bit and we, we're, we're deep in it. Um, but we actually, we, we started not producing in the garment district. We started... Um, with a cut and sew facility that did really small batch things actually in Atlanta. Life had taken us to Atlanta, but we very quickly realized that we needed the resources of New York manufacturing. So we moved ourselves up to New York in 2017, and now we do everything um, in the garment district, and perhaps stubbornly so. Um, and by everything, we in terms of listeners who might not know all the production ins and outs, we do our sampling, which means we do all the prototyping for new clothing there. Once we have a prototype, we do the marking and grading there, which means taking those and figuring out how the pieces fit onto fabric and having those um, printed out as large paper rolls and then grading, uh, figuring out how you size up and down those very garments uh, and then we do all the cutting of the, the fabric and all the sewing of the fabric. We do all the trimming. So most of the, the parts of the whole assembly process, we do pretty much between 35th Street and 38th Street in Manhattan. Um, and we love it. It's, it's become not only the means by which we produce our work, it's also um, sort of the, the joy by which we do it. We've come to really get to know so many of each of the people who do each of those steps along the assembly process. Uh, and the more we spend time there, the deeper our roots have become and the more we feel integrated into it. Um, so that's why I say stubbornly. We There's always the option to go look for other places to produce your work. Um, but we have been sort of creatively and businessly sustained by this 
very curious and fascinating corner of Manhattan. And so we just stay. And um, it's really become part of our identity and part of our entire creative process. Hmm. So you basically just show up with a sample garment that you've made up in your own studio. And uh, in an afternoon, you can figure out sort of all the production by visiting a bunch of different shops of the the grader and the sewer and like fabric sourcing and, and pretty much everything just pretty happens much. in this small corner of Manhattan. Yeah. Um, everything, but essentially the, the weaving of the fabric, which often is happening elsewhere. Um, for our company, we get a, a good percentage of our fabric um, from Belgium. Uh, there just are not large scale weaving facilities in midtown Manhattan, but pretty much everything else you would do to fabric. Yeah. You can find within a few storefronts essentially. Um, and we often won't show up necessarily with, uh, 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 even, a um, like a, a Muslim gar- muslin garment or like a, a prototype garment. We often can even show up now that we have these relationships with even just an idea and we can talk it out with, um, the tailors who will then help us, uh, conceive what we want. And then we go back and forth and we drape and we talk about this and that, and we'll eventually out of this collaborative process come away with what we think is the final sample. And then that sets you off to the races in terms of finding the actual materials that go in to make the final garment. Oh, so they're at the point where they're even doing sampling for you. Yeah. And yeah. You can have that often. relationship well enough and they know your brand and they know what you're about, that they can make something to your standards. Uh, exactly. More and easily takes, from working together a long time. It takes a long, it takes a long time to build that relationship. But um, once you're there, it's a really, powerful thing to see your ideas say reflected back at you and then they can be tweaked and adjusted and also having outside expertise um some of the tailors we work with you know they've they've been at this for decades and we're at it for just a few years so if a shoulder isn't falling just right and you're like ah what do we do they're like here we adjust this seam and you're like that that know-how, that intuitive sensibility about the construction of clothing is invaluable. And that's why we're here to work with real craftspeople who have a real knowledge uh, and a real talent. And we, I think we, because we were able to meet so many talented um, sewers and tailors uh, in such a quick fashion, we had a very uh, fast education ourselves uh, to understanding things that, you know, just by, you know, from, from a mere, uh, bird's eye view as a designer, you aren't necessarily thinking of, but it's great to have people who have, again, decades of know-how who can remind you of all the different particulars of the materiality of everything from buttons to zippers to fabric. And, uh, and yeah, so we, we've, we have benefited greatly from the collective wisdom of the garment district. Hmm. And when you say the garment district, like what exactly is that? Is it just sort of a informal name for all these businesses that exist up there? Is there some uh, sort of regulation that's keeping it um, in that area? Or is it, uh, is there something more formal about it? So there it's both formal and informal. Um, And I say it's formal because the garment district historically was actually created as its own zoning block back in uh, the early 1900s. And when the city designated what it called the garment district, it would have been uh, from 34th Street on the south side to 40th Street on the north, and then on the east side, Broadway, and then on the west side, uh, 9th Avenue. So it's, if you were, for people who have visited New York, the kind of landmarks to think about it. It's like on the South side, Penn station on the North side, Times square, Broadway on the East. And then there's like not a good landmark on the West. It's kind of like the backside of the port authority. Um, (laughs) Most beautiful part of New York city. Exactly. So, and, and the truth is most people who have probably visited um, and done, you know, the touristy things like Times square, they've walked through the garment district almost certainly. Uh, and if you're not paying attention to it, you might miss it because it is, uh, a cluster of buildings again, in that sort of boundary that, um, are mostly 10 stories and above. And 
the businesses can be be all over the place. And so to move through it as a garment maker, you're often going to a business on a 12th floor here, taking the elevator down, zipping across the block, and then going to something on the sixth floor, doing a little something there, then going around. And I've heard people describe it as being like a, um, a coral reef because it's kind of a three-dimensional ecosystem. Mm. It's like on the street level, it doesn't really feel like it, except there's a couple, you know, ground level shops that have sewing machine parts and like people running around with bolts of fabric on their shoulder. But um, yeah, everything's really happening above ground. There was a period in history when you couldn't miss the fact that you're in the garment district, that it would have been so crowded with rolling racks that traffic couldn't pass in the cross streets. And uh, again, bolts of fabric were being unloaded and loaded. And you had, uh, there's all these funny stories about the mob run uh, trucking uh, services that would f- come into the garment district, load up with stuff, and then take them over to New Jersey. So there was just constant hubbub um, of a, what felt visually like a really thriving business. Um, but that's not the reality now. And so that kind of is the second part of that question, which is that's the, in, the informal nature of the garment district. Um, even though that's the traditional boundary that we just talked about, at this point, the sort of informal beating heart of the garment district is smaller. Um, It's really focused around, say, 38th and 39th Street and 7th Avenue. Uh, For people who have have some memory of that or some visual of that, there is a Klaus Oldenburg um, sculpture of a large needle and thread uh, going through a button. Um, And that's kind of symbolically and also in actuality, pretty close to the majority of garment manufacturing. Uh, And so there's less that's happening over by Ninth Avenue. There's much less that happens as you get closer to Penn Station. So the the sort of informal reality of it is it's um, it's a smaller subsection, and it's also now much more interspersed with other kinds of commerce. So you know, there's hotels and there's law firms and there's architecture firms and there's restaurants. It's not what it was back in the early part of the 20th century, which was exclusively garment manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there any particular reason that it decided to cluster in that area or is it just sort of organically developed that, you know, one person uh, staked a flag in there that was making shirts and everyone else just sort of uh, followed along? It's fascinatingly totally contrived and inorganic. Uh, so in the sort of quick and dirty history of New York manufacturing, the, the high point of New York manufacturing actually predates the garment district. There was a period in New York history at the turn of the 20th century where almost half of New Yorkers were engaged in the garment trade. Um, I found one statistic that it was 40, 46% of the industrial labor force in New York was working in the garment trade. Um, But this was a period where that meant that they were often working in their homes, in the tenements. Uh, Mm -hmm. And this was child labor. This was sweatshops. uh, And it was... This was Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire era. Just slightly before. Actually, this is what what leads us to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. So People coming out of the tenements and being forced into sweatshops. Exactly. So laws were put into effect uh, that shut down what was being called homework. Uh, Not like what you do at school, but actually the work being done in homes. Um, So social crusaders uh, and labor rights people eventually had enough pressure to end tenement work. And what then happened is clusters of loft factories started to open up near the tenements of the Lower East Side. So heading north from the Lower East Side, heading into like what is kind of the NYU area now, one of them would become the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, which in 1911 very famously burns down and is one of the worst labor disasters Uh, and tragedies in American history, but also an important galvanizing moment that really brought attention to the plight of workers. The bigger issue that kind of sets the scene for the garment district is you have all of these factories mostly being worked in by uh, first-generation immigrant women, a lot of Irish, Italian, Jewish, and they're being put into factories that are 
edging their way farther north and closer to the supposedly respectable parts of New York. And in early 1915, uh, a group was formed called the Fifth Avenue Association. And they were a mix of uh, business owners, um, primarily in retail, along Fifth Avenue, who didn't like seeing the immigrant sewers going and coming from work, taking their lunch breaks, and just sort of getting a little too close to the well-to-do coming down Fifth Avenue to take their lunches and go shopping. Um, How grotesque. Yeah. And if you go back to the New York Times articles from this time and you read the screeds, they just are blatantly racist. Um, And I have the name of one of the the leads of this. So if you if someone does want to go and the leading like, like quote unquote reformers that wanted all of these immigrants out of their neighborhood. Exactly. So Robert Greer Cook was really the spearhead of this. And he was also the architect of something that he called the Save New York campaign, which was exclusively to try and remove immigrant women from Manhattan. Uh, And his project, his goal was to push them and all manufacturing out into Brooklyn. And he gained a lot of political clout uh, and would get sort of widespread support across many of the elites in New York. But they didn't quite have enough political muscle or leverage to force the garment manufacturers entirely out of Manhattan. Many of the manufacturers themselves had some political power, but many of them were immigrants as well. Um, The garment industry in New York has always been a place for immigrants to own businesses, immigrants to get an early job. It's been the hotbed of so much labor and reform, but it also means that you're, they're often the underdogs. So while they had some power, they didn't have all the power. And the compromise that was struck between this growing initiative, the Fifth Avenue Association, um, and the business owners from the garment factories was, okay, we'll move out of the area on the east side, and we'll, but we need to stay in Manhattan. So they decided that they could move to the Tenderloin. And the Tenderloin at that point was kind of the area we've been discussing, you know, it's, it's south of Times Square and it is uh, west of Broadway. And in 1911 to 1915, this was the hotbed of brothels. Uh, it was crime infested. It was known for both organized crime and petty crime. Um, and all of these old brownstones that had once been part of this neighborhood have been mostly deserted and had been turned into Uh, brothels. But what the city did um, is on July 25th of 1916, they did what is historically a kind of remarkable thing. They created a zoning law that demarcated those same boundaries that I mentioned before and said garment manufacturing can only happen in this area, specifically in what they were calling a garment district. And this has been really important for New York history, but it's actually really important in terms of zoning history in general. It was really the first time that a industrial quarantine had been conceived of and enacted. So while it's somewhat common now, it was a relatively new legal mechanism um, at that point to say, you can't do anything outside of this. If you're going to be in this industry, you're going to be between 34th and 40th Street, Broadway and 9th. Mm. So very different than our modern conception of city zoning, which is usually done, you know, with the carrot of like, oh, you get a tax break or there's like some incentive to operate in this designated area where this was like, literally it's illegal to make clothing anywhere else than in this uh, box that we've drawn. Right. Um, And at that point it was a pretty gnarly box. It was beat down. It was far from most uh, commerce, but for the benefit of the garment manufacturers, it was still in Manhattan and it was by the new Penn station, which had just been built and the new Broadway line subway. So even though at some level in the short term, it was pretty bleak territory in the long term, it had, it would become a transportation hub and absolute gasoline for, um, 
the growing garment industry. It ended up being the best possible place to be. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm surprised that um, when you mentioned that this is like 46% of New Yorkers were employed by the garment dis- uh, industry, that they didn't have more political clout to be able to resist a lot of these um, you know, regulations being forced upon them. Um, but I guess, as you also mentioned, they're all largely immigrant women, which were generally disenfranchised uh, still to this day. Right. Um, and, and that's still very much the makeup of, of the garment district. Oh, that exodus happened uh, in what the, the mid 1910s. And from that point onward, this has sort of been the uh, hub of garment manufacturing in general in New York City. Yeah. So 1916, you have the, the enforcement of the, the garment district. Um, there isn't a new building built in that area until 1920. But after 1920, after essentially after World War I, you have a building bonanza. And you have a lot of young architects working in the Art Deco. Um, and very quickly, you have many almost uh, buildings the size of full city blocks going up very quickly. I heard one architect describe this period essentially from 1920 into the early 30s and then also trailing into World War II. Um, but this sort of, this, this period of construction um, as the horizontal empire state building, that it required as much energy and um, construction know-how as the vertical spire of the empire states building, but it's all along the blocks. So it's, it's kind of to the known, to the, those who, the, who know the history, they know what kind of an engineering feat the construction of the garment district was, but for most people, they just pass it by. But if you do, if you do actually spend the time and look, there are some really amazing details. A lot of the buildings are still those original buildings, still from the early twenties and early thirties. Mm-hmm. For better and for worse, as for I guess we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I guess fast forwarding to uh, more modern times. So, like, what was your first introduction to the garment district, and how did you uh, arrive coming from Atlanta? Um, to using it was there uh, is there an introduction or is there a like starters course for um, <laughs> newbies coming into the garment district uh, that want to get production done? You know we uh, we had a personal introduction to um, a factory. So someone who we happened to have met in Atlanta was like, oh, I know somebody. So that that really helped us get entryway. But um, I've met many people um, who all had the experience of going to the kiosk, which is also at 38th and 7th, um, and looking at the list of uh, suppliers and manufacturers in there, uh, and really starting from nothing, just having a name and an idea, and uh, going off to the races. Um, The guys from Outlier, I think you guys uh, did a piece on them back when, uh, a few years ago. three years ago. And they have, like, one of my favorite garment district stories about wanting to um, sort of having a really good idea, but not knowing how to make it right away. And then just by, you know, showing up, they were able to do it um, in searching there's literally around. a kiosk. So like you show up like at the mall and there's an information desk that has, you know, a listing of all the different manufacturers and everything that they do and, you know, what their address is and how to get in contact with them. That's what it was. And I'm very sad to say that uh, for a number of, it may be years now, it has not been functional. It's been actually locked up and there are plans to dismantle it. So I I don't know what the future of this is. Like this story can't be told by the next generation. What replaced it is that same database on a website, which is functional, but not kind of as, uh, immediately useful when you're in the area. Exactly. Um, and they're going to actually, as I saw one plan that they're fully going to disassemble the kiosk, leaving just the, the Klaus Oldenburg statue, which is currently resting on top of it, uh, and coming up with a new apparatus to hold the, the, the sculpture itself. Wow. Yeah. I'm literally being hollowed out like in literally. real time. Um, oh, sorry, I cut you off from talking about uh, Outlier and their journey in uh getting set up in the garment district yeah i think they're they're a really good example of people who weren't from in the industry who 
were able to just by, you know, having those a, a few crumbs of information, we're able to piece together a really um, fascinating and powerful business. Um, and there's so many other people who have that kind of a story too. I, I don't personally know them, but I was reading up that apparently Under Armour also did something very similar in their early days. Well, there's so many of the, the venerated people too, like um, who we think of as like, like Donna Karen and um, Calvin Klein all also le- sort of like learned the ropes in the garment district specifically. Uh, and, and even other more contemporary brands like theory, like we can probably go down a list of most of the brands you sort of think about as being iconic uh, American brands, rag and bone things you would find in many department stores. And so much of what they became came from work they all did in, again, those same small blocks in the New York garment district. And these little shops that you're visiting, you know, when you go to see a pattern maker, it's, it's not like you have something that is vertically integrated and has, you know, 300 employees or something and they do everything. You're having to sort of bounce around and like put together the aspects of your production a la carte of like, say like one factory does shirts, another one does pants, another one does outerwear, uh, something like that. So uh, could you speak, I guess, a little bit to that and like what your sort of choose your own adventure in the um, the garment district look like? Absolutely. So yeah, it's one of the parts that I find most, I don't know, exhilarating and, and interesting is the shopping around for all the little minutia that might go into making a garment. So um yeah, there's, uh, and so much of it is done through word of mouth. Like you'll be talking to people and like, you're like, ah, I have this garment. I want to say, make it raw silk. Or is there someone who's really good at sewing silk products? And you'll be like, oh yeah, so-and-so is great at this. And you get that contact and you go there. And that also belies the the wonderfulness of being in the district and having a stop in chat. I can't tell you how many times you're just walking down the street you see another designer, you catch up a little bit, and then you actually exchange some incredibly important knowledge for solving a problem. Uh, and that's happened umpteen times and is one of the sort of unwritten benefits of the density of something like the Garment District. And of course, this is pre-coronavirus Garment District. This has not been the reality for many months, but prior to it, it, it was one of the joys of it. Um, and so, yeah, you you integrate with, uh, you hear about, you know, someone who can do a thing for you. And often these are businesses that are in small spaces. Like I was saying, it might be 12 stories up on 35th street and you, you ride up, you go meet with them and they're often, yeah, in these buildings where they, the, the original buildings are again from sometimes from the twenties, thirties and forties. So the spaces are relatively small. Um, and the, the factories may have a dozen or fewer people actually working in them. And those dozen or fewer people are often incredibly skilled laborers uh, who can do really amazing, very detail oriented work for you, or they are specialists in just one machine. Like you want to have a special seam done um, or you need a special kind of, uh, hand sewing technique to get this or that detail or embroidery or any number of things. Um, if you can think it can be done, there's probably someone in the garment district who's been doing it for 30 plus years. I often hear the term uh, incubator passed around um, when discussing the garment district, I guess, as you describe with uh, all of these manufacturing facilities that are super eager to uh, help you find somewhere else that's useful for you. And then all these like stop and chats that you describe with other designers that it seems like, you know, so many household names would not be there or even names in our niche wouldn't right. be there. Is, uh, like pretty much anyone where you see like made in New York, like on the tag, it's happening in that tiny area, like um, battenware or engineered garments yeah. or corridor. Yep. Um, they all have a certain like, sizable amount of their production happening in that area. And the, and I think engineered garments is a particularly important one to talk about. They have been for a very long time, such an advocate of using the garment district and um, still to this day use a lot. And 
it's it's not necessarily if you see the made in New York label, it doesn't necessarily mean it was exclusively made on those blocks that we were talking about. Sometimes it can be made in Brooklyn. Sometimes it can be made in Queens. Um, but there is still a sizable percentage being made in Manhattan in that historic cluster. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, all those brands that you mentioned are people who are part of this kind of, well, we'll, we'll use, we'll use incubator. They're part of the sort of like mm-hmm. incubator arc that is fostered by a place like the garment district where you have an idea, you come, you start to make it, you have facilities that can do very small runs for you. Sometimes 10 or fewer garments, 25 garments, you know, just enough that you can, you can don't have to buy a ton of fabric ahead of time. You don't have to invest heavily yourself, but you can make enough to then go out and try and sell it and get enough money to, to get to the next season and on and on and on. Um, and so the scale can be very human and very manageable for people just starting off. Um, and then as you get bigger and bigger, the garment district is there to help you and can size you up to a certain amount of, of quantity. Um, but I think you'll, and your, your listeners might also be aware, like at a certain point, a company gets um, so big that they need to do many, many units. And that often is what pushes a lot of companies out of the garment district uh, into other places. So in our sort of corner of the world, a lot of people have gone to production in Portugal where they can increase the number of units. Um, but to get to that point, to get to the place where you can make that many units, you have to have, you have to have had the fostering and the benefit of the garment district to get you from one idea to five, five garments, and then to your second season, and then on and on and on. Uh, and so it's a very important part of how you can actually grow in an organic, sensible, thoughtful way, instead of you know just trying to create 10,000 units in a Chinese factory and try and sell them on Instagram as quickly as possible. Yeah, as you might not know what you're doing, and it's a lot more money to invest uh, exactly. to try to get that to happen. Right. Um, yeah. And, and there's, so there's, there's, so that's, there's, that's one part of the sort of intellectual ecosystem of the garment district. The other part and is back to uh, so many brands that, that you are familiar with still who may be producing 20,000 units, 50,000 units in India and China, which, which are really the only places on the planet who can do that kind of volume. Um, they still are often making their samples here in New York because the skill level is so high and the ability to be at your office and then just walk over and discuss with the tailor about what you need to do and have quick turnaround in terms of how you're prototyping out your sample, New York still plays a really crucial role. So often the first version of garments that might be repeated ad nauseum in a foreign factory, they're, they're often developed here in New York um, and so even though the New York Garment District might not be making all the garments, it's deeply integrated into the global fashion system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like all of these major international fashion brands still have a lot of their designers based in New York City. Right. And to just get all of that work done there in development rather than having things, you know, DHL'd across the globe uh, a half dozen times with multiple days in between, you can just get it done immediately and then ship that out to get replicated, as you said, like tens of thousands of times. So, I mean, so it's, it's, it's this kind of double-edged sword, right? In some ways, the participating in its own demise (laughs) in a way. And I think that's always been the story of the garment district that it's always been embattled and always been declining. So it, we're nowhere near that high point, um, you know, of the sweatshops and the tenements when the garment district or when garment manufacturing was really at the height it's always been a sort of a slow trickle um, to where we are today, but what's left has really been a really tenacious and almost essential part of the, like I'm saying, the global fashion ecosystem yeah. uh, um, economy. But again, it's so it's, it has this double edged quality to it, two faced quality to it where working in the garment district, making your stuff, there seems to be the antidote to fast fashion. But the truth is, 
so much of what is fast fashion needs the prototyping that comes out of the garment district as well. So it's, it's got both elements uh, uncomfortably coexisting. Yeah. No, it's basically shrunk from being the you know provider to being the test kitchen right. uh, for the rest of the global fashion industry. Right. And, um, and just to put a number on it, it's at this point, the, it depends on who you, you talk to. Um, it's about 5,000 people working in the garment district. Hmm. And this so, is down from, do you have any um, sense of what that was like in you know, 1916 when it was first established? I couldn't find a specific statistic on that. So it would be speculation on my, my end, but. Um, more than 5,000 probably. More than 5,000. Uh, and of course, as a percentage of the city now, or this should say the metropolitan area, it's a much smaller um, percentage of the, of the working population. I did find, interestingly, though, um, one of the organizations that's part of the Garment District um, did a survey to try and figure out where the workers of the Garment District actually live. Um, And so this is a a snapshot taken in 2017. Um, 84% of them live in Queens. Uh, 41% of them, I'm sorry, 84% of factories employ a worker from Queens. 41% of uh, factories uh, employ someone from Brooklyn and 27% employ someone from New Jersey. So it's really a distributed workforce in the entire metropolitan area. Um, So when you need that Broadway subway line to bring people into work every day. Yeah, absolutely. But when you think about 5,000 people being part of the, what, like 18 million in the metropolitan area, it's a very small, very hyper-specialized population. Oh, we've alluded to this quite a bit, um, but as you said, the the garment district is somewhat embattled right now, and um, is not necessarily in a sustainable place. And that was really when we first got to know each other in New York a few years ago. Yeah, that um, you uh, informed me about a lot of the fight to keep the garment district where it is right now, even in its um, greatly diminished sense. Um. Oh, I wondered if you could um, explain a bit about what the Garment District's current situation is uh, as they're taking away everything from the the kiosk to uh, perhaps the tax benefits that you get from having a production facility there and what the city's plan is for uh, the Garment District in the future. Sure. So to set the stage a little bit, we have to go to another period of embattlement, which was the late 80s. Uh, the garment district had, for all the reasons you can imagine, been losing both workers and, uh, and sort of political power in the city and had been decreasing both in its footprint that it occupied in the garment district and the number of workers who it employed. Um, so, uh, in 1987, backed by a, a couple of unions to try and stem the force of the encroachment of other types of businesses into the garment district they created uh, something called a special zoning district, um, which would then be called the, the, the garment center. And so it was a smaller subset of the original garment district. And the real core of it was something was um, between seventh and eighth and between 34th and 40th. That was the, the, the main uh, corridor that the unions convinced the city to put the special zoning law in, which made it uh, such that there could be no net loss of manufacturing square footage. So if you converted your, what used to be, say, an old bias tape factory into a law firm, you had to, in some way, find the exact same square footage for another factory in the garment area, the special district. So the theory was that would preserve the uh, at least the amount of square footage needed to support the garment industry. So that's 1987. And there was a whole other political fight that happened then. And it was sort of resolved. Fast forward a couple decades. Um, in the Bloomberg administration, under Mayor Bloomberg, there was an attempt to uh, dismantle that so that uh, conversions to other types of businesses that are not fashion-related could happen easily. Uh, there was a lot of pushback and the idea was eventually scrapped. 
But in the de Blasio administration, it reemerged. And this is exactly the moment that my wife and I moved to New York and we landed smack dab into a new political debate, which was uh, the idea of getting rid of the special zoning district entirely and allowing any kind of business to operate in what had been since 1987 um, supposed to be doubly preserved as uh, only for garment manufacturing. And the city was offering as a sort of alternative to uh, build out an area near Industry City in Brooklyn, an area, uh, the Bush Terminal area, and to offer that at um, discounted rates to garment manufacturing. Um, and for those who uh, had read the history, it had this uncomfortable resonance. It was almost a century, exactly a century later from when the Fifth Avenue Association was telling all the garment workers to go to Brooklyn, that we are having the de Blasio administration telling all the garment workers to go to Brooklyn. Uh, Which when all the garment, well, not all of them, but a, a significant portion of the garment workers live in New Jersey and the Bronx. Exactly. Um, it's really difficult for them to be able to get to, uh, to work in Brooklyn. Oh, uh, nearly impossible. If, uh, if you're being optimistic, it would add a few hours of commute. Um, which is of course unsustainable. Maybe, maybe you can entertain it for a year or more, but it's not realistic for someone to have a career like that or to uproot their entire life and change where they live just because of this city zoning idea. Um, not to boot, there's all sorts of other logistical issues about how most of the storage for clothing is still in New Jersey. So you get your trucks come in, you take them over to New Jersey and they get shipped out to the world. Uh, it just adds all this other logistical mayhem to bring uh, everything over into Brooklyn. That said, um, there was a considerable debate. There were people who uh, were, and they had all sorts of different opinions about it. There was uh, old timers who had seen this happen perennially and were like, oh, here we go again. Uh, and we're having the same old fight that we had since 1987. And in every mayor administration since, it's just de Blasio's turn to try and get rid of us. Uh, and you had uh, newer comers to the, the fight, like my wife and I, who were like, whoa, 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 wait, like we just got here. We, you can't take this away from us. Um, and then you had some really strong uh, uh, other designers who were much more venerated and older than us who were able to also be like, no, we understand that this is an important thing and we need to keep it here. So um, the pushback was slow, but it was considerable. Um, it went into a committee uh, brokered by the borough president, which is a very idiosyncratic position that we have in New York. Each borough has its own um, president who is supposed to be a citizen's advocate um, uh, in relationship to city hall. Um, and she uh, created a sort of uh, compromise deal that ultimately old Gail Brewer. Yeah, Gail Brewer. Yeah, no, I, I, I want the entire Heddles universe to know I really respect Gail Brewer. I think she is a model uh, public servant and really tried to do right by everybody in this situation, and also put in the time and energy to try and get this resolved in some way, and. I was definitely of the position that I wanted maximum security and protections for the garment industry. Ultimately, that's not what happened. Ultimately, the zoning designation that I mentioned was removed um, as of 2018. So the battle really got started in 2017. It was taken away in 2018. But the concession that Gail Brewer was able to negotiate with the city, and it was enacted by the um, Economic Development Council, was that uh, two, two very large provisions. One, um, for landlords who are in the district, um, they, if they maintain long-term leases for garment manufacturers, they can get uh, tax abatements. So a sort of a positive incentive to keep manufacturing there. And second, uh, the city itself was going to purchase buildings outright and dedicate them in perpetuity to garment manufacturing and run it 
somewhat along the model that they already run the Brooklyn Navy Yards, which some of your listeners might be familiar with, uh, which is a a mixed-use industrial space in Brooklyn that um, is run by an umbrella nonprofit that is given its authority from the city to have hopefully rent controls for different makers. Um, And there's everyone from fashion designers to woodworkers to um, interior design people in the Brooklyn Navy Yards. So that was the kind of working model. And the idea was take something like that, have the city buy buildings outright in the historic garment district and have a nonprofit operate that. Now, we don't know how that's all going to play out because the actual application process to have your your building, if you are a, a landowner, purchased by the city, that period for applying ends this August. So August 2020 is kind of when the rubber will meet the road and we'll see if this plan, one, worked, that there was enough landlords who wanted to sell to the city in this environment um, to reach what uh, was understood to be the critical number of a million square feet of manufacturing space. Um, It's an interesting dynamic right now that uh, the value of office space in the last few months has been totally thrown up in the air. So a lot of uh, building owners and land developers who I imagine those are the other people on the other side of the table that want to remove the garment manufacturing from the garment district. Yeah, that they might have newfound motivation to sell their buildings to the city as fast as they possibly can. Right. Um, so the the application process may there may be more people now who are trying to sell to the city, and um, we will have to wait and see until after August to see what actually happens. But sort of the economics of it all. Back when all this was going on in 2017, they did do uh, an evaluation of the rent, and if you're selling market rates, so like if you actually are able to convert your uh, factory space into something, say, for an architecture firm, you can get about $50 a square feet uh, back in 2017. Um, but factories were maxing out mostly at about $30 a square feet, a uh, foot. So when landlords are looking at that $20 swing per square foot, that's a massive amount of monetary incentive to convert. Yeah, and third, but when you also think about manufacturing at $30 a square foot, that's a huge amount of overhead. Yeah. It's, um, and at the same time, it's difficult to overstate, though, the true value of what the garment district is bringing to the global economy because it provides, you know, as we said, like the, the testing ground for the global fashion industry. Right. That if you get rid of the garment district, that it is sort of like pulling out the bottom layer of the Jenga uh, tower uh, on all of this. And it would have much, much more far-reaching implications than just those landlords getting an extra $20 a square foot. Oh, by far. Absolutely. Um, and and I think the, the battle in 2017 really highlighted, it's not merely, say, keeping it in New York. That even the uns, the 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 uh, the moving of the garment district from Manhattan to Brooklyn would have such a unsettling ripple effect across the garment industry that even that's too risky to do. So if you had your druthers, like what is the the ideal solution uh, in your mind? For this answer, I'm just going to bracket coronavirus for a second, mm-hmm. uh, assuming we'll return to some form of normalcy. Um, and uh, everyone else is already pretending it doesn't exist, so uh, we might as well for the purpose of this conversation. Okay. We can we can come back to reality after this, but I think yeah. um, what it means going forward is I think some of – if I had my, my like wish list, um, I would really like to see sensible commercial rent control. Um, like we were saying, you know, $30 a square foot as a kind of average for manufacturers is not truly sustainable. Um, but it's also not something that zoning necessarily can manage. So there needs to be some other legal mechanism that can get in there and try and help small business owners. And that's not just true for manufacturing. That's true for businesses all across the city and all sorts of different sectors. So probably state-level legislation on uh, commercial rent control. Um, I would also like to see the garment district's physical uh, structure 
revitalized and improved. A lot of the building stock like we've been talking about is a hundred years old and has had a rather rough life of um, light manufacturing, bumping it around and knocking it. Uh, and so in many ways it needs a facelift or that's, uh, that's euphemistic. It, it needs sometimes full on guts and reconstruction. But I think I would love to see that effort put in rather than just trying to walk away from that problem. Uh, as we've said, one of the, the most important resources that the garment district has is its centrality, its access to public transportation. You have all of these people who can access it without ever getting into a car. Um, and you know, we're, we were, we live in Brooklyn, um, and we would go into the garment district and so much of our business was actually just done with our two arms in a sense, we could just take bolts of fabric on and off the subway to and from the garment district. And we needed so little in terms of overhead and machinery or trucks to transport anything or do, do any of those things. And there's something so beautiful about how minimal you can integrate, how minimally you can integrate with uh, this infrastructure in part because it is so seamlessly built at the center of all of these powerful transportation hubs. Um, yeah, I remember you talking about uh, picking up all of your finished production and just taking it home on the subway. Yeah, I'm, it's it's happened a number of times. We'll we'll get like a full run of I don't know like slacks, and we can you know put them into bags and rolling suitcases, and we look like tourists heading over to LaGuardia, but in fact we're actually we have um, half of our year's revenue like waiting <laughs> around us, and we're just on the subway with everybody else. And that point that you bring up about uh, revamping the buildings, that's that's a, one of the more legitimate arguments that I've heard about moving the garment district is that a lot of these buildings, as you said, are like 100 years old plus, and they are not uh, up to code or safe necessarily for the work that's being done in them at the moment. Right. Um, and that is a serious question that needs to be dealt with and that bumps up against, you know, humane labor conditions for the workers themselves. Um, and, but of course, at what's the, at what cost, right? Like we, I've, so that's why I'm saying it's my dream that we take very seriously the importance of keeping the central location of the garment district, but we also keep very seriously the need to keep everyone as safe and healthy as possible. Again, we're not even just talking about coronavirus. We're just talking about proper ventilation and adequate, light and all of the things that you would think that you would need in a modern facility that really should just be where the garment district is, but there isn't always, there hasn't necessarily been the economic or the political will to make that happen. And the landlords probably don't have a lot of motivation to you know, do a lot of expensive updates when they're making 40% less than what they expect to make if they just you know, kick these people out. Absolutely. And there's all sorts of other things at the business level. So a business, you know, might themselves be like, screw it. This is really important for me. I'm going to put in a ventilation system and I'm going to put in bright new windows and I'm going to pay for it. But if they can't get long-term leases, those kinds of capital improvements just become economically or sort of on the accounting level stupid. So you can't do improvements on your on the physical plant you're probably not going to be buying better or new machinery because you just can't deal with the long-term costs of that because you just don't know if you don't get a you know five to 15 year lease whether or not you'll ever get your return. So that's the other that's the other big um, that's if I had another thing to add to the wish list would be also uh, rules for extending long-term leases to these small businesses. What do you think the coronavirus means for the garment district? I guess uh, tabling that uh, wish list and that fantasy. Um, where do you think it's going? Uh, do you think that it could possibly be a benefit for it? So I, when when I knew we were going to talk, I went on to Google and was just sort of like looking at stuff. And there was a, a local news broadcast from March sixth. Uh, saying what a fantastic thing coronavirus is for the garment district. Um, because at that point, we weren't in lockdown. And uh, China 
was. So all of these factories or all of these um, brands that had been doing overseas production suddenly needed to scramble. And the garment district was getting huge orders for things that would have been otherwise made overseas. Um, but watching it, it's just like it's it's it was going back into such a bizarro time capsule because, you know, within a week after that, everything here was shut down. Um, so I don't think that same there was there was like people literally saying, thank God for coronavirus on some of these clips. And you're like, no one is going to say that now. Is there a possibility for significant reshoring Um post-coronavirus. I think there's a little bit of political will that will be there, especially with the disasters with PPE and realizing that so much of the the basic infrastructure to even sew masks was mostly overseas that it spooked um, both people and politicians. So there might be some traction there to get incentives to reshore some production. But I don't know if, if those... If the if that will really last post coronavirus, um, but maybe no uh, short term memory about supply exactly. chains and their necessity. Totally, and maybe in in the the big picture, maybe it's more important to reshore heavy metal mining than it is garment construction. I don't know. There may be different forces at play that that uh, will determine that. But the other factor that might actually come in to help the garment district is the real estate pressures that were once bearing down on them that were raising market rate to $50 a square foot that were uh, making one of the, one of the arguments that the de Blasio administration put forward was there just wasn't enough office space in midtown Manhattan. They grade office space on a a letter scale from a, B and C. uh, And they had produced a glut of a levels. This is like the, the fanciest kinds of offices where you have a someone at a front desk and they check you in and you have a really nice lobby and maybe there's art in the lobby and all this this kind of stuff. That's A-level. And they had a, a ton of it because they had just finished building out um, both a, an expansion project of in Midtown and then also Hudson Yards. Uh, and what they were lacking were B and C. So these would be much more spared down, cheaper rental places that might not have a doorman, they might not have anything, They uh, no lobby to speak of, just a door to the elevator. Um, and they saw this as an important part of the overall office space ecosystem of the city and that the garment district was perfectly positioned to convert into B and C class offices. But fast forward to coronavirus time, people aren't going into offices. There's just nothing but gloom and doom reporting about what's going to happen to the the real estate market for offices specifically. So if that incentive is just off the table, the garment district might have a little bit of reprieve for longer than it would have otherwise. Has production started back up again in the garment district? It has. So we uh, officially garment production was allowed to start with phase two um, in New York, which would have uh, happened in mid June ish. Uh, but we, with the different people we work with in reality, it's been staggered. Some people opened right away. Some people have yet to open, but the majority of, of the businesses we interact with were all open by July. So after July 4th, things were mostly normal, um, normal in the sense that we could give them a call, talk about what to make and actually start the, uh, the sewing machines whirring. But um, we haven't gone. They haven't seen us. It's all been over the phone. Uh, Couriers have become an important part. So where I used to be the one carrying the bolts of fabric or the the shirts, we we just the other day had to take a bunch of shirts from one factory to another to get snaps put onto them. and where there a blue made Western in the future? There might be. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be purposely vague about it, but. Your your sleuthing about snaps is you're you're a wily one, David Shuck. You're a wily one. Uh, I keep my ear to the ground. <laughs> but yes, hopefully we'll be able to talk about that as our like, coronavirus project. Um, but we where we used to be the the people who could just take those ourselves, we had to 
you know, use a courier service. And the businesses we deal with, they all have their different protocols about um, who can come into their their places, uh, how they're socially distancing. Um, and it's been fine. Um, and I will say that overall, we have been very pleased and optimistic. And I think one of the things that's been most pleasing is I think we really feel like everyone who we work with is working within their comfort zone. Um, and there's hasn't been pressure for anyone to do something that makes them feel unsafe or uncomfortable. And this is a benefit of operations that are a dozen people or less exactly. uh, in a lot of these smaller factories. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so far, knock on wood, um, no one in our sort of in our network in the garment district has uh, been ill. So we're, we're very relieved. And of, of course this whole thing is not over yet and vigilance is still really important. Um, mm-hmm. But and especially in the garment district when a lot of these, uh, a lot of the workforce is quite old. Yeah. Um, yes. And, you know, anecdotally, you know, many of the people we work with across multiple businesses are mostly older women mostly older women of color and many are first generation immigrants. So is you look at the stories of how coronavirus is moving through the world, it's a very at risk population. Right. Um, so if anyone listening has, uh, I guess seen the value in the garment district and wants to help preserve it, is there anything that they can do, whether they're a residents of New York city or not? Absolutely. You know, it's, uh, I think the easiest one is caring about where your clothing are made. Sometimes that's easy to figure out. Sometimes it's not. I think now most brands are who do make in the garment district, try to be transparent about that. So if you can go to their websites and find out more about them, that's a good way. Um, I mean, We've talked about a few, like engineered garments, of course, is one that's been there for a long time. There's, uh, I think, a brand that I think is doing everything right and is a really interesting perspective um, and also makes everything in the garment district is Kai D. Um, And he also has a a retail store in Williamsburg. Uh, And like knowing about those smaller brands and being as informed as possible will go a long way to preserving this way of making and this way of life in a sense, a, a kind of, it's a, uh, this, this continually embattled way of life, uh, which is New York garment making. Um, and, uh, and sometimes, but not always, uh, brands will also have a made in New York stamp on them. Uh, there, that could be its own podcast in its own right. The politics of the made in New York, um, which also what percentage is made of New York and who gets to use it. That's part of it too. And also like the, the coming and going of political initiatives for it. So LaGuardia, Mayor LaGuardia of airport fame, he was really the first person to want to really label made in New York as made in New York. And he was also the one who put the money forward to form FIT, um, and to, after World War II, to really try and grab all of the uh, energy of the global fashion market after Paris collapsed during World War II. He consciously tried to make New York the next Paris. Um, and so the Made in New York label was part of that. Um, but it lost a lot of uh, energy over the 80s and the 90s. And it's sort of come back a little bit. But you know, as a, as a designer and a brand ourselves, um, we don't necessarily use it on the clothing, but we do use it as part of our marketing. Like we, if you go to our website, we'll talk very much about being in New York, making in New York and how that's really important to us, but that specific tag, meh, not so much. So, and I think that's true of other brands who make in New York. It often, it's about understanding their story rather than having to just read the label. And so I would definitely encourage, and I think the listeners of Heddles are already pre-prepped to do this, to take that extra step and try and learn more about who, who's making what and where they're making it. Well, thanks so much. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to get into or anything you wanted to plug uh, as well for uh, Blue Maid, if not a future Western shirt? <laughs> well, right. Top secret. Uh, 
maybe, maybe not Western shirt. Um, but yeah, keep, keep posted. I think everything going forward for brands of our scale and our size is going to be really interesting. Um, we of course can't have any more of our wholesale markets. So a fundamental part of how we distribute to stores has been disrupted, not irrevocably. We of course still have telephones and we can still uh, do video calls with, with all the stores. But one of the sort of cornerstones of our year were the twice annual seasonal markets that would happen and they're gone. So we are, uh, uh, everyone, the designers, the retailers, and now the consumers, we're all going to have to learn how to interact online in more sort of explicit and deliberate ways. So, um, yeah, check us out on Instagram. Stay tuned. We're, we're still doing stuff. We're still making stuff. Uh, but it's just the in-person element of so much of what we've done is going to have to be on pause for a while. Yeah. And that's uh, at Blue Maid. At Blue Maid, and Blue Maid is spelled B-L-L-U-E-M-A-D-E. Okay, and uh, Blue, Blue Maid spelled the same way, dot com? That's right. Two L's, okay. one D. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thanks so much for coming on, Alex. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time and giving such a you know thorough and well-researched history of the Garment District, and uh, hope it can be there for many generations of designers to come. Me too. I hope our pessimism will be something we'll laugh about many years from now. Well, here's to that. All right. That's our show this week, folks. want to thank Alex for coming on. If you want to check out him and Lily's brand, Blue Made, that is blue with two L's, made.com and at Blue Made on all the socials. And want to give one final plug to the Heddle shop. If you want to check out those snap button Western short sleeve Madras shirts from left field. You can do that at shop.heddles.com. 10% off with the code blowout. And as always, remember, wear a mask, Black Lives Matter, drink more water, and we will see you next week.